right, we are continuing our discussion on prayer, and I don't, at this point in discussing prayer, it's been several weeks, uh, we also are going through prayer in small groups, uh, I wonder how you're doing, are you discouraged, are you encouraged, uh, what encourages me is that this Lord's Prayer and the one similar to it in Luke are Jesus' willingness to teach us, those of us are, that are disciples of Christ, he assumes need to learn prayer. And it's not a one-time learning, but it's a progressive learning. And this morning's petition that we're going to look at is very unique in two ways. Number one, we're talking about sin and confessing sin. One of the ways it's confusing or difficult is we don't like to do it. We want our daily bread. We don't want to be led into temptation. right? We, those are great petitions, but we really don't like to confess sin. And another interesting aspect of it is that Jesus didn't have to pray that prayer. When the disciples are watching Jesus pray, he wasn't confessing his sin. So it's a very unique petition that we're going to look at, but I think it's in many ways the fuel. So if you'll bear with me for just a little bit through the pain of talking about sin, here they go, these reformed people once again trying to beat us down with their worm theology. Well, maybe. But I would just ask that we give the gospel a chance to show us why confession is so helpful. So, if you'll stand for the reading of God's Word, our passage is going to uh, mostly focus on verse 12, but we're going to pick up 14 and 15 as well. But I'm going to read the whole Lord's Prayer. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Again, remember, That is the seat for the prayer. The fatherness of God and the holiness of God. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we do pray for Your Gospel, for Your Spirit, for Your truth to help us understand confession of sin and forgiveness. Because our flesh and the devil in this world want to convince us that here is a place where it's proven that you really want us to go out and perform first, and it's not the truth. Help us to understand the truth that your Gospel, the same Gospel that frees us to forgive, frees us to confess. Help us to understand how to pray better. In your name we pray. Amen. I've used this illustration, but not as an intro, so I have the opportunity to do this. But It's a Wonderful Life has to be in my top five favorite movies, especially as Christmas gets near. The scene where Mr. Potter, the villain, the capitalist, has invited in, um, oh my goodness, I just went blank, George Bailey, that's why you take notes, to into his office to give him, he's like, George, you've beaten me, right? He's going to give up. He's going to take George, who runs the savings and loan, and hire him because he thinks he's been beaten. What we know 
is that he's a sinister old man who's trying to hire George Bailey, buy the savings and loan, and shut it down. That's his business model, right? Well, he sits there and he gives him a cigar and he starts to tell him how wonderful he is and he's so much better than his dad was and he's arrived and here's a good salary and you can travel to London. I have no idea why with that kind of business, but he's going to get to do all this amazing stuff. And there's George Bailey with his cigar taking it in. And then they shake hands. And he wants a day to think about it and they shake hands. And Jimmy Stewart, one of the best actors of all time, you, you see his face, he shakes the hand of George ba- or of, uh, Mr. Potter, and then he just looks at his hand and he starts wiping it off. And it just all becomes clear. Ah, oh, the evil. He's like, you, and he just starts to let him have it. This was your plan, you're all, and he starts to yell at Mr. Potter. He yells at the guy behind him who's just like the secretary, I guess. He walks out the door and he starts yelling at everyone in the bank on his way out the bank. Okay, why is that a great scene? I think we all, like George Bailey, think there's this Christian life, there's this arrival that we're after. And we want it so desperately. And we don't quite know what to do with confessing sin. And what I think we have to do, and what what George Bailey has to do in that movie is realize the very concept, the worldview he has of success is completely and utterly wrong. It's completely backwards, isn't it? It's not travel... It's not wealth. It's not having a plastics factory and all these things. But it's doing, it's a whole bunch of other things like the friendships and the loving the community and the serving each other and his neighbors well. It's a complete 180. I'm going to ask us to sort of consider that 180 when it comes to the Christian life. What is your view of the Christian life? What is your view of success? What are you after? How many of you dream of the day, if you're honest, where you could wake up, open the Bible, and say, I have nothing to confess. This is really weird. Let me think again. There's nothing that I've done wrong for 24 hours. This is amazing. How many of you long for that day? Isn't that what we do? We plan out our, our, our whole view of Christianity is if we are successful, we will have a quiet time eventually. Where angels come in and tell us, man, you're doing really good. I'm really proud of you. But that is not what we see. What we find when we look at Scripture is that the actual posture of a believer, this side of heaven, is one of daily repentance. That's what sparked the Reformation. The realization, not that we should go out and try to sin. Don't hear me, we're going to talk about that. But that the very thing we think is negative is the fuel. So, you've heard it before maybe, but here's the, here's the proposition to the sermon. The way up in the Christian life really is the way down. And we have to grasp this and understand that confession of sin and forgiveness, both God's forgiveness of us and our forgiveness of others, is the posture of successful Christian living. And it's from that posture that holiness comes, but not while we're going after the holiness. So we'll talk about that couple of things. First, I want to talk about the nature of debt, confessing the debt, the concept of forgiveness. Those are the three kind of pegs. In verse 12, in the, in the heart of this, this, this discussion is, he says in verse 12, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The other word used just after that is trespass. Interesting words for sin. Debt and trespass. 
And what they have in view is not the idea of something separate from everything else, but something that mars something that is good. Think about debt. If you go into debt, you are taking somebody else's stuff, right? That's what debt is. You're saying, I'm going to take your resources and use them, but I'm going to pay them back. And you're in debt when those resources are still in your hands or, or, or in your possession. So debt is borrowing from someone else. And the ultimate borrowing of all sin is borrowing from the goodness of God. Um, and I want to just read the quote on your worship guide. St. Augustine says this, Sin comes when we take a perfectly natural desire or longing. Okay, that is God's way, right? Or ambition. And we try desperately to fulfill it without God. We try to steal it. Not only is it sin, it is a perverse distortion of the image of the Creator in us. All these good things and all their, our security are rightly found only and completely in Him. Another writer says, sin is taking all the desires for godliness but doing them separately from God. Wanting sort of the trappings of godliness without God. And so we're actually taking the things he's giving and we're marring them. I remember being in seminary, this concept, I'd never heard it before. I'm sure you guys have. I was, I was a stunted Christian going in. But uh, I always thought sin was sort of a thing. You know, is it a thing? Is there such a thing as just sin? Can you go out and just find it sitting out there in the world? And what theologians will tell us is that is not possible. Sin is a parasite, an uninvited guest that keeps tapping its host for sustenance. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. He says, goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness isn't only spoiled goodness, Our badness is only spoiled goodness. So goodness is something. Badness is not something. It's spoiled goodness, right? So he says there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. What's the point? Sin is always our distorting the good. Think of any sin. Sexual sin is taking a gift from God and distorting it for our own ends. Greed is taking the, the gifts of God and saying, I want more. And they're always, the goal behind the sin is always to be like God. To have more power. To have more sense of self. To strive for more. And so we're actually, if you look at all our sin, what we're really doing is we're trying to squash God away. And take what He has and have it for our own. Sin is everywhere. And I think when you come into our church, I don't know, you notice we do a confession of sin. And I think... Some people look at this and just think we're negative. Like, why do we always talk about it? You know? Why can't we just talk about the good stuff? And the answer is because it's so pervasive. That if we believe the gospel, we can't ignore it. Now, I'm going to do something that may derail the whole sermon. I'm going to bring up the, the hot topic from this week from my alma mater, OU. I'm not going to talk about it exhaustively. I want to be careful, but we all, most of us know the story, the video. Right of the frats, you know the bus and the song, and you watch that video, and I think everyone is rightly just blown away by the racism in that song. It's just shocking, right? I, I and I don't. This is why am I talking about it? Because I think 
what, we, what, the, what the world seems to be doing with it is acting like we thought that was gone, right? That's one of the responses. So we're shocked that it isn't gone. But then there's other problems. Wait a minute, what if that wasn't caught on video? If someone just reported, do you know there's just some lyrics from a song that was sung on a bus ride a few months ago? Would they have been expelled? Why? Is that the first time that song was ever sung on, that, on a bus like that? It was a founder's party from 1909. Is it possible that that song had been sung by every person in that fraternity since 1909? I mean, when you start to think about the possible pervasiveness of the sin, I, I almost wonder if the reaction is our own guilt. It's wrong, it's evil, don't get me wrong. But what if there was a video that surfaced of your last week? Like the worst thing you did. Okay? And it's on video now. Or maybe a thought you had, or something you said is recorded. Or even just this morning. See, sin is pervasive. It's, It's pollution, and it's there. And you cannot grow in your Christian life by ignoring it. Our community cannot grow as long as that bus and those people are doing that stuff. The same thing with our personal lives as our public lives, right? So sin is pervasive. And when we come to this passage, Jesus assumes it. He doesn't say, and when you sin, occasionally pray this prayer. He's assuming it. You're sinful. And I think we all know it, that we're sinful. But then we have to confess our sin. How good are you at confessing your sin? I've often talked to people about this. I've thought this myself. Oftentimes people say, why do we need to confess it? I mean, God is sovereign. God knows what we've done. Why do I need to go off and talk about it, right? Why belabor it? And I think some of the way we do this is we sort of say general stuff like, Lord, you know my sin is grievous, right? We, we have a lingo to avoid it, right? I am such a big sinner, um, Others of us may just ignore it completely. I don't confess sin unless it's really bad or I'm busted in it. But there's this desire to sort of avoid it. And Jonathan Edwards, if you read, he has a perfect little, well, not perfect, but it's a letter to a young convert. And much of this letter to a young woman who's talking about growing in in the Christian life is about confessing her sin. I remember reading this because what was astonishing to me was he encouraged her to do something that I bet most of us haven't done. Confess the sins even prior to conversion. She was to go through her life and, and to, he would encourage us, to really think about all the ways we've sinned. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 15 says, Men ought not, men and women, ought not to content themselves with general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his or her particular sins particularly. Get really detailed. Wow, it's awesome. And then in 1 John, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How much burden do you all feel under? Just oh, all this confession. Here's the reality. I think our view of our confessing of sins reveals our view of the Gospel. Do you believe that you are a son or a daughter of the living God? Do you believe that Jesus loves you? Do you believe that you're forgiven? In John 13, you have this scene where Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. He comes to Peter, and, he, and Peter, and I've talked about it here before we looked at the passage, but 
Peter does not want him to get near his feet. Remember? And so what does Peter do? You'll never wash my feet. And Jesus says, I have to wash you if you want any part of me. He's talking about salvation, isn't he? But then Peter says, oh, okay, fine. My head, my hands, my, my just give me a bath. Because Jesus actually says, you don't need a bath. You just need your feet to be washed. What Jesus is saying is, even after conversion, once you are already in, you're already known, you really do have parts of you that still need washing. We have real sin. It's tangible. But here's the good news. He gets up and he does it. He came to wash our sin. So are we living in some weird, crazy world where we think, well, I came to Christ in 1982, so since then I shouldn't have sinned? Or are you realizing this is actually good news? There's actually rescue. And he comes and he washes my sin. And this is good news. Yesterday my dad came to help us with the project. And he's very handy. So what happens is my dad um, calls up and my wife talks to him. I don't even talk. And I just find out he's coming up to do this whole list of projects because I don't know how to do them. And he shows up and he's joyful about it. He's got wood. He's got tools. He's got skills. And when he's finished, I'm thinking, okay, go work on the sermon. Good. He finishes up. Let's, keep, let's go. They, Emily starts marching through the house, pointing out other stuff. What about this here? And what about that? And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Why do I hate that? Because it exposes me. I can't do it. When you give me the list, I just go, I'm exposed. <laughs> but he is actually, he gets the list, and he's like, I got this. That is Jesus. Jesus, my dad's not Jesus, but Jesus <laughs> takes your list and says, I got this. Let's go. Let's go in. Let's go deep. Let's look at this closely. Another illustration that helps me, that scene, I don't remember what Tom Cruise movie it was, but he's hovering in that crazy room. Remember that scene where he's hovering? Is it Minority Report? It has to be Mission Impossible because like, he did eight of them. Okay, Mission Impossible. I know it wasn't risky business. And there, you know, But this room is just utterly sensitive and so he's got this way of hovering in. And, you know, I don't remember what he's even doing there. I think he just thought it was a cool room. He needs something out of this room. It's like CIA headquarters or something. I'm going to keep looking at you now, Jonathan. But remember the drop of sweat that's coming down? And it's like, oh, no. If that drop hits, all the alarms will sound. That is a picture of our hearts. And that's how sensitive we are. We are so scared of going into our heart. We're afraid that just one little misstep is going to explode, and yet that is sanctification. Jesus is like, we're going in. The alarms are turned off. We're going to look at all the places you've hid away secrets, and all the crud, and all the hoarding you do, and we're going to uncover it. And we're going to expose it. Because I can clean this. I can fix this. Remember, the Christian life is not that you have a perfect heart on your own. It's that you are learning more and more to abide with Jesus. Is that what your goal is? So, I want to talk about forgiveness. We're going to lead into forgiveness. You're confessing your sins. But he doesn't just say confess your sins. He says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Why is this important? Um, one of the problems, I think, that comes out of talking a lot about grace, a lot about the love of Christ, the unmerited receipt of, of the Gospel, is we tend to rather 
than think that Jesus has done a tremendous thing for us, sometimes we swing the pendulum and we go, sin's no big deal, right? It's not a big deal. Um, And I think we have a problem of trivializing sin. I think the legalist trivializes sin by saying it's doable, but the gospel can sometimes produce in us an antinomianism or a licentiousness that trivializes sin by saying it's just no big deal. And we have to be careful because Jesus doesn't just forgive you your sins, does he? Does he just forgive them? What does he do? He takes them. He took them on, right? And he dies for them. He pays the debt. In Matthew 18, we see sort of a test of whether we understand the gospel when you have this um, parable of the... I'll just turn there. The parable, after Peter talks about forgiveness, Jesus explains there was a man who owed, and he just explains like, okay, look, he owed so much money that... To pay it back, he's going to become an indentured servant. His wife and children will probably be sold into slavery. Like, it was life-ending debt. Okay? But the, the ruler invites him in and forgives him his debt. Remember this? And what does the guy do? The guy leaves the room, walks out on the street, sees another guy that owes him like a couple hundred dollars, says, hey, I need my money, and throws him into jail. And people see this. It's such a large, known story that people see it, and they report it back. Is Jesus, and, and when you read that parable, and I've even seen people say, see, see, you have to forgive or you're not going to heaven. Have you all ever thought that? When you heard the verse today, did anyone think, so if I don't forgive, I don't go to heaven? Did anyone think that? Or wonder if that's what maybe was going on? Um, rather, what Jesus is saying then, and I love that parable because he makes it with such obvious hyperbole, I think, to say the debt you've been forgiven is so much and so great that when you realize what Jesus, the lengths he went to for you, you're you're never going to demand from other people. You're going to forgive. And it's really an application of the whole thing. If you believe the gospel and you run to Jesus and he really is your source of life, you'll know it. Because you're not keeping short accounts with everybody around you. Are you forgiving people? Is this something you do? I want to I try to use other language. We are very good at avoiding... We don't say things like, I don't forgive that person. We don't say that, you know. Rarely does someone say, Steve, I don't forgive Steve, you know. We say things like, oh, I don't talk to Steve. Or I haven't seen them in years. You know? Or we do things like we walk by without nodding, you know, nods to nothing, Seinfeld fans. We, we sort of snub people, right? Or maybe we're passive-aggressive. We do millions of things to people in, our, in an attempt to say we don't forgive them, right? Are you forgiving people? Or are you holding little grudges? Does the gospel produce forgiveness in your heart? Right? That's the question and that's the test of this passage. Do you believe that your sins are covered? I actually laid in bed last night. I woke up in the middle of the night and I was just struck by this realization that my heart wants proof of forgiveness before I believe I've been forgiven. It just, it's very, it's impossible. It is absolutely impossible to realize 
I've been forgiven until I see fruit of it without the gospel, without the spirit. And so I think that's where we get stunted. We think we want forgiveness, but we want to make sure we see fruit. And so we sort of don't think we're forgiven. And then if some fruit shows up, maybe it's been a week since we've done that thing, or an hour, or a month, whatever. Now we think we've been forgiven. But all we've done is we've said, look what I've done. Look how good I'm performing. The hardest thing to do, this side of heaven, is to say without any evidence of all, at all, I am been, I have been forgiven by Jesus. He has taken that sin and put it on His back. And He has carried it to the cross. And then I'm thinking back to this prayer that Jesus is giving us. And it's, it's amazing. We know in John chapter 2, that in the wedding of Cana, that Jesus knows why He came. He knows, he says, you know, to his mother, woman, my time has not come to turn the water to wine. He knows he came for his blood to be spilled. So you know that as he's teaching these disciples and you and I, years away from the crucifixion, he knows, pray that your sins will be forgiven, that he is saying, you're going to need me. I'm going to die. And you think, well, maybe Jesus didn't pray this prayer, but I'm going to step out of theology for a minute and just talk about uh, I don't, Jesus never sinned. But Jesus bore our sin. And our theology has to embrace the fact that Jesus became sin. So in a way, He really did go to the Father and say, forgive us our sin. But He was the only one that could say, because of my righteousness. But He bore it for us. He was that Trojan horse going in, you know, he had it. We're behind him, like trailing, like hope it's forgiven, and it's been forgiven. So he can pray as our elder brother, forgive us our debt. And it's true, and it's real. And that that reality practically frees us to confess the nitty-gritty sins of our heart. Is that encouraging? Are we doing this? I want to get practical. I want to use an illustration and then um, maybe make it practical to close. There's a great book, and I this is a really good book. Everything he writes is good. But J.I. Packer, Rediscovering Holiness. Um, ironically, his chapter on repentance is the way up is the way down. That's not just something I coined or others coined. Even Dr. Packer, um, but he talks about. He spends a lot of time in the book with a guy named John Bradford. Don't worry, there's no relation to Sam Bradford. Um, Though, maybe there is. Maybe we could do some research. John Bradford was a Puritan. Uh, Early in the Puritan world, uh, he was killed by Queen Mary. He had been a Christian for six years. And he came to Christ at the age of 45. So it was in 1555. It was really before Puritanism took off, right? Still just post-Reformation or in the midst of all that. Um, but for six years, this guy was a Christian. And he became known as the expert on repentance. And I wanted to just read one quote. There's, he covers it for like six pages. But the, his biographer, who led him to Christ, and then 18 years later just writes about him and uh, talks about his amazing uh, godliness, says, not only in public preaching, but also in private conference and company. For in all companies, groups, 
where he did come, he would freely reprove any sin and misbehavior which appeared in any person. And none of you are free to do this until you listen to the rest of the quote. Especially swearers, filthy talkers, and the list goes on. And this he did with such grace and Christian majesty that ever he stopped the mouths of the gainsayers. For he spoke with power, and yet so sweetly that they might see their evil to be evil and hurtful to them. I mean, can you imagine confronting someone in such a way that they go, yeah, you're right, it is hurting me. You know, we don't do that. Because we're usually just confronting out of irritation and not out of love. And he says, um, the goal was that he would labor to draw them into God. If you read his prayers and his repentance and his practice, he would, he actually, has been, there's two things he's been credited with. Number one, possibly starting the spiritual journal. And secondly, he has been credited with the phrase, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. He would see a criminal on the street being taken off, and he'd go, there but for the grace of God goes John Bradford. Okay, practically. Maybe a journal, definitely in prayer, we have to confess our sins. But joyfully, you've already been forgiven. Jesus isn't waiting for you to confess it, to forgive it, but we do need to put words to it. And I think we see this with our children. Like, every, no, I love, never, I always talk to my kids, I know, and I remember when I was an RUF guy, they go, I hate children illustrations because we don't have them, but you'll understand. Um, try to get a child to apologize. What is, how does it work? You might get the word sorry, if you're lucky. Usually it's, Sorry. You know? It's like there was not one muscle that moved. That was you could be a ventriloquist. What is it about adding the words I am? You know, that just I am sorry. Oh, you know? And then to actually say, why don't you just tell the other person the thing you did? I mean, we all know it, right? We know you stole the thing, you lied, whatever. Just say it. It's a picture of our heart. We don't want to say what we've done. We do not want to even utter it to God. We just, so we, we hide behind platitudes if we say any confession at all. So, as you pray, will you pray with the conviction that you are loved and you are free? And Jesus has shown up and said, let's go into your heart together, but I can't fix what you don't show me. Don't expect things to get better you tell them, I need to know. My dad needs to know what's broken. I would be like, I don't know, just go in there, do your best, I'm going to go to the golf course. You know? um, we have to walk the Lord in and say, see that? There's an area where I'm not abiding in you. There is an area where it is just distorted and destroyed. And he will come in and fix it. Because it's his Holy Spirit that frees you to even confess. And the larger your sin becomes, as John Owen said, the larger your Savior becomes to you. Jesus doesn't change, but your view of Him and your experience of Him changes. And all of a sudden, you're living that victorious Christian life you've always wanted, but not because you've learned to have the four-hour quiet time, though that would be great, but that you actually want four hours, but you, you have to go do the next thing because you love Jesus now. Because He's your Savior, finally. He's not a tyrant anymore. He's the lover of your soul. Is that the source of your prayer? Is that the heart? Is that the middle? 
hope it is. And I hope it becomes that way for all of us. Let's pray.